Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back, everyone. Really happy that you're all listening. Um, Just a quick reminder to please leave a review on iTunes if you think of it. Uh, This week, we're digging into the thought of Irenaeus, uh, who's writing about the time that uh, Justin Martyr met his end, maybe a bit past that. So just let's get into it. Uh, Who was this guy, Travis? Who's, Who's Irenaeus? Well, we don't know a whole lot about who he was. We do know that he lived in the 2nd century. He died in the early 3rd century. He was a Greek-speaking guy from modern Turkey, which was then Asia Minor. And he later moved to Gaul. And that may have been when he might have become a bishop, probably, we think. Not totally clear, but yeah, Gaul, that's like modern France. This is around the time when Emperor Marcus Aurelius was persecuting Christians, and this seemed to have impacted his church community in Gaul. Uh, We can tell he had more than a rudimentary education. He wrote in Greek, but what we have in terms of text right now are Latin and Armenian translations of his works. We don't really have a lot of the original. And other than that, there's just not all that much. We know that he wrote two texts that are certainly pertinent to our discussion today. One is has a really great title, which I kind of love. It's called The Detection and Overthrow of So-Called Knowledge. And I just, I want to write something. Like, Klaus, we should definitely write something called that at some point. <laughs> Uh, I want just all of the sarcasm dripping in the title of whatever we write. It's also known as Against Heresies. That's the title in Latin that most people know it by. I say in Latin, but that's definitely English. Fun fact. Okay, so. uh, And then he also wrote something we called the Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, which does give a little bit of important information for our purposes around his reading or his interpretation of Genesis. So he, as we think about his significance, he is also a really important source of information on the Gnostic movements or Gnosticism, as it's sometimes called when people want to generalize about these rather different groups that sprung up around the same time that Irenaeus is writing. He was sort of gifted with the opportunity to expound on Christian theology in large part in his verbal sparrings, his rhetorical sparrings against heretics, thus against heresies, for example. And uh, what he gave us was for a long time one of the very few sources that were available to scholars who wanted to know about Gnostic groups until we had that big cache of discoveries at Nag Hammadi when a bunch of Coptic manuscripts of Gnostic origin largely bore out what he had to say. So often you get these Christian polemical texts that really purposefully twist the arguments of heretics so that you can win the argument. But that seems not to be the case with him, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's it's crazy that the mid-20th century was really uh, the cup overfloweth with riches in terms of um, the Dead Sea Scrolls getting discovered and the Nag Hammadi right. uh, cache of texts. Scholars of late antiquity really didn't know what to do with themselves for a while with all that floating around. <laughs> yeah, it um, seems like they had this big burst of discoveries and then now it's just like mostly quiet. 
It's like now there's like a forgery or two. And yeah. Well, last week with Justin, we saw how early Christians uh, are looking to different parts in the creation mythology of the Hebrew Bible to locate the origin of evil, whether in angels or humans. And Justin used both the Garden of Eden and the myth of the Watchers that we've been talking about for a while that sort of jumps off from Genesis 6 and finds its way into the Book of Enoch and Jubilees and the Dead Sea Scrolls. He uses both of these sites and sets of legends to explain human sinfulness. Um, In the one case for uh, quote-unquote pagan Roman civilization, and in the other case for Jewish tradition. That's certainly right. And this strategy that you describe of going to the Hebrew Bible to find that origin of evil is definitely not going away anytime soon. Christian theologians are going to keep reading the Hebrew Bible with an eye toward making it all about their theology, whether that's the Trinity, the Incarnation, or whatever. Yeah, the way this typically works, and that awful pun is intended, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's like an interpretive process practice that sees key moments of Christian salvation history prefigured in the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible characters or events are the types for the antitype in the New Testament. This is sort of the the hermeneutical Uh window. That's that's, that's why they painted the big bucks here. Um, (laughs) On the one hand, the imperative to see everything in the Hebrew Bible as building up towards Christ forces Christian writers to think in some sort of, some might say creative, some might say contrived ways to make this all work. Uh, On the other hand, it's not too hard to see how this ends up supporting supersessionism. That is the idea that the Hebrew Bible is all just building up towards the New Testament and then it's outdated software. Yeah, I guess my reaction to that is that we're still in such early days of Christianity that the supersessionism, while totally real and at times really intense, see Justin Martyr, for example, there's a sense of coming out of that tradition that I feel moderates it very slightly when we think about the horribly violent history that's going to happen centuries later between Christians and Jews. I don't know if I want to stand by that, but... That is a thought. Well, it makes it, it seems like you could almost see it how it was like maybe an occasionalistic kind of talking point mm-hmm. in the first and second century. And then it became like, you know, the uh, the key to explain everything as it was cemented in the tradition. Right. Then, then we get into the like Jesus killers and the, you know, yeah. Yeah, horrible exactly. history that happens later. Okay. And even though Irenaeus definitely sees everything building up to Jesus, that Hebrew Bible, all these texts are pointing in that direction he creates what is actually a physical connection between the characters in Hebrew Bible books like Genesis and, if you can believe it, the Incarnation. It's not just typology or symbolic foreshadowing. You say physical connection. Aren't the characters in like the book of Genesis and the characters in the New Testament separated by centuries and centuries and centuries? Like, How does that work? Well, Irenaeus describes... The word walking and talking with Adam in the garden. The word, that's right, yeah, like Christ, like the first chapter of the Gospel of John in the beginning was the word. That word is walking and talking with Adam in the garden. They were totally like bros, apparently, according to Irenaeus. It's a little strange that he's only explicit about this bro bonding experience happening with Adam and not Eve, but I guess it's a case of bros before... Uh, don't even go there, man. 
we don't even need to assume that the word is male, as many feminist and womanist theologians of the 20th, 21st century are, have, have been showing us for a while. So there might only be one bro in this instance. Okay, but so right, the word and Adam, they went off on a big hike. They were, they were hiking buddies. What's the big deal? Bear with me. Irenaeus's big idea about human salvation and atonement is called recapitulation, and it's ferociously literal. So what am I talking about? Recapitulation is a rhetorical term for summing up the main points or the heads of an argument. The idea also has biblical warrant. It shows up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he writes, He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, that's the key part, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so this gathering up is represented by the Greek, oh, here we go, anakephaliosasthai, please help me. I don't know what I'm doing. Greek is not one of my languages, so I always like try and lean on Klaus here. And as it has the same root word of head as its Latin equivalent, recapitulate has caput, which incidentally is also the Latin word for chapter. So a recap, then, is like reading the chapter titles of something or chapter headings, if you will. Okay, thank you all for my fun trip down linguistic lane. I really appreciate your bearing with me. That was super fun for me and no one else. So Christ then, in Irenaeus' thought, recapitulates Adam. And that's not just by summing him up, reading his chapter headings, if you will, but also, I would say, by perfecting him. Here he's drawing on another idea from Paul, that Christ is the second Adam. Irenaeus took this idea super seriously, to the point of insisting that both Jesus and Adam have here it is for you, Klaus, the same flesh. We're going way past bros here, okay? The word created Adam out of dirt by impressing the divine image upon him. Okay, so he's the word sand sculpture come to life. But how does that give them the same flesh when the word becomes flesh? Okay, it's going to get even weirder. So keep bearing with me. Neither Adam nor Jesus have human fathers, right? So Jesus does have, I mean, like, with apologies to Joseph, poor Joseph. But uh, yeah, Joseph is not contributing DNA to this divine human amalgam. With apologies to all the theologians listening, amalgam, probably heresy. So don't use that word. Anyway, Jesus does have a mother, but crucially, she's a virgin, her flesh, therefore, is untainted. <laughs> Man, purity politics. I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, it's going to, like, hardcore, Klaus. Purity politics, like, we're going to go all the way there. So Mary's flesh was untainted, which for Irenaeus means that that flesh is essentially continuous with Adam's flesh, created from dust, which also had yet to be tainted in its sort of original state, right? So it wouldn't do for God to create another sort of dust man to be God. The whole point is saving the original creation, not creating like a new one. The original dust man. The original dadgum, ever-loving dust man. So they're, they're basically the same guy. Mm, not quite. 
Man, much has been born with here, Travis. Well, just keep sitting down, Klaus, because it's just going to stay weird. Okay, so back to Dustman, our favorite superhero. It's all the same dust, or flesh, however you want to say it. The same kind of primal material between Adam and Christ, right? But Jesus goes through all the life stages. He's a baby. He's a young man. You know, he becomes a fully adult, grown-ass man. And that means he can handle things a lot better than Adam did in the garden. So you're trying to tell me that Adam's like this preteen punk. All right, let's back up a second. So for Irenaeus, as with other Christian theologians we've seen, Genesis becomes a huge deal in explaining the fall for humanity and the work of the devil. That doesn't mean they all think about the Garden of Eden in the same way. A lot of them just keep coming back to it. And Irenaeus in particular has a pretty unique method or sort of way into making sense of Adam and Eve. If you were just to go off the iconography that surrounds Adam and Eve in Genesis, you would definitely come to the conclusion that God created them as fully formed adults. I mean, when have you ever seen like baby Adam and Eve paintings? That is not a thing that I am familiar with. Oh, art historians, though, definitely email us or tweet at us if I am wrong. I would love to see baby Adam and Eve art. But that's not how Irenaeus sees it. Instead, both Adam and Eve, in his mind, are very young, almost as if they're preteens. At one point, he literally compares them to infants. Man, that, that gives this whole thing a different flavor than the iconography and everything we usually associate with this. So Irenaeus, as with most of the patristic theologians we'll be looking at, wants to hold on to the idea that human beings are created with free will, and that way they can be held morally responsible for what happens in the garden. Definitely, I would also just add like the sexual undertones that get drawn out in the later tradition about Adam and Eve and what it means to consume the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The eroticization of this story doesn't make much sense with infants, I would say. <laughs> um, just like shout out there. Fair, but fair point. <laughs> in terms of back to free will, we can think of teenagers or pre-adolescents as technically having free will, being their own persons, or at least on the way there, but also being a bit hampered by their immaturity. They have the potential for responsibility and freedom, but it's in very early stages, and maybe things aren't really gelling just yet. Yeah, so and that's really how I think Irenaeus accounts for the devil's ability to seduce Adam and Eve to the dark side of the force. They're really vulnerable in this version of the story. And for Irenaeus, the devil inhabits the snake and tempts Adam and Eve. And this is the moment when he falls. There's like no cosmic battle between armies of angels where the devil and his merry band lose the war, like, like in Milton or something. The devil is an angel who serves as a caretaker or steward of the earth and is the boss of all the other angels. He's got like a big gig here. And he's this kind of secret regent while Adam and Eve grew up into their full lordship 
over the earth, you know, once they take down the Metallica posters from their bedrooms and shit like that, you know? <laughs> so the, pro- the problem is the devil, the devil doesn't like this arrangement. He wants them to keep those posters there forever. He wants to rule. Uh, and that envy is what motivates the temptation. Irenaeus describes Satan's move here as um, apostasy, which is like standing away, literally. I freely admit that the argument gets a bit weird from here, as if it hadn't been weird up to this point. (laughs) (laughs) Supposedly, this standing away becomes a kind of revolt. And that makes Satan the first heretic, and in particular, the first Gnostic, which, you know, Irenaeus considers to be heresy. Well, you know, how convenient for him, right? Yeah. So, okay, envious of Adam... Satan turns away from God and leads Adam with him through the temptation as the snake in Eden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It makes free will a bit less important than other later theologians will have it, and it puts a lot of the blame on Satan. You know, I guess that makes sense. Is apostasy a nice logical category for describing Satan's fall here? I'm going with no. But it sure was convenient for Irenaeus' rhetorical purposes as he's sparring with all these Gnostics. That's what we think's going on. It seems like there probably were Gnostics in Gaul. Um, and, and certainly, they, I think there certainly were in Asia Minor from where he, whence he came. But it's not just Satan who takes on more agency when free will is de-emphasized. And as one of our sources, uh, um, the historian Russell, points out, Irenaeus' ideas about this also leave the door open for granting God some of the responsibility for the mess that comes out of this. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And it's a bit different from the theologians who are working in Egypt in the city of Alexandria in this period. And those folks present, especially Adam, as this lordly paragon of human potential nearing his fulfillment, you know, fulfilling his destiny. He's really like living his best life, right? Um, (laughs) Come on, sis. And it's, this feels very, you know, Greek speaking world inspired, philosophical in its, in its roots. But that's over there. On the other hand, we've got Irenaeus giving us some pimply, awkward preteens. This is definitely the emo version of the Garden of Eden. No shit, the devil had his way. But are there any advantages to the way Irenaeus theorizes the fall? What do you think, Klaus? One of the advantages is I can sort of imagine... Uh, Adam and Eve on the cover of a Saves the Day album. You know, that's one of the advantages. <laughs> speaking of iconography, right? Yeah, speaking of iconography, uh, through being cool with Adam and Eve on, on the, in the back porch. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, one of, one of the advantages I found interesting is a suggestion that God intended Adam and Eve to eat the tree of knowledge eventually uh, when they are more mature, mature, <laughs> able to handle... <laughs> the heady revelations that would come out of this, uh, this apple. Oh my God. Speaking of purity culture, you have to wait. Klaus. You have to wait. You're just preteens. You, you know, be patient. Here's a promise ring. That's another emo group. (laughs) The promise, the promise ring. (laughs) For sure. And it seems that Irenaeus is connecting this moral knowledge from the promise ring, uh, <laughs> with some familiarity <laughs> with human sexuality, it would seem. Um, and this, mm. of course, is going to continue to haunt this blessed tradition. Mm. Amen. So nothing in Genesis said Adam and Eve became sexually active as a result of the, again, fruit, because we don't know that it's an apple. That tradition 
has been layered onto the text. We saw it in Milton especially, but it seems like the interesting potential in what Irenaeus is laying out is that the tree of knowledge isn't simply this gotcha trap laid right smack in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Of course, the humans were going to get into that mess, and God knew that. It wasn't about entrapping humanity and more about pacing them. Mm. This also fits in with an assertion we see in Irenaeus' work that material creation and embodied existence for human beings is a good thing, a deliberate intention on God's part, and not simply some cosmic detritus or collateral damage of fallen human or angelic nature, as you might see in another theologian we'll get to talk about later, like Origen. This emphasis in Irenaeus is likely a result of this rivalry or this animosity with the Gnostic tradition. So we keep mentioning that we're going to be brave enough someday to talk about in a podcast because uh, it's really complicated. Again, this is all with the caveat that this is how theologians like Irenaeus would have categorized these people. But you've got the Marcionites, people who are following Marcion, who was actually the guy who put together the first canon list of the New Testament, uh, who view materiality as evil and creation as the product of a kind of dummy workshop artisan, uh, the Demiurge. Hey, it's the Demiurge. Uh, Wait, I'm getting this weird Demiurge <laughs> to read more about the Gnostics. So strange. Thanks, yeah, thanks, Klaus. Yeah, yeah, getting this yeah, weird yeah, Demiurge. The Demiurge comes upon me very often. Uh, it's like a partial yeah, urge. <laughs> right. That's what it means. And then, and then there's then there are the Valentinians, and um, it kind of sounds like uh, an old pizza parlor from where I grew up, uh, Valentinos. But no, these <laughs> people they don't make pizza. They reject the Old Testament outright, as in the Seems like a, you know, we all need, we all need hobbies, Klaus. Don't begrudge them yeah, their hobbies. Yeah, you know, pizza or, you know, rejecting God and seeing, you know, refusing <laughs> to see creation as good, um, yeah. which is a big part of the Genesis narrative. And all this all goes out the window for, for these different groups that Irenaeus is beefing with. Um, and so Irenaeus, in sort of good reactionary fashion, is the one to be like really pile onto material stuff being good. It's like, okay, well, my enemies are really against this, but I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the canon pure. I'm keeping the Hebrew Bible as it was sort of. And you know, when God says that he rested and everything was good, it was good, but it's interesting. You know, it's Irenaeus is part of this tradition. I think, especially with theologians who come out of the Greek speaking world to affirm the goodness of, of material creation in a way that's maybe a little bit less there in the Western Latin tradition. Right. Oh, absolutely. And because material creation is good for Irenaeus, that's why the devil wants in on that action. It's not that the devil created the material world and therefore has this association. It's that he's trying to get in on it, right? As if, Yeah, as if he could do that, right? Right, you know, as like, if he could. Again, it's kind of a pretender devil figure who thinks, you know, he's a bit too big for his britches in Irenaeus, I think. So he's trying to gain a hold over humanity and over creation. For Irenaeus, it's not really about usurping God in heaven. It's not that kind of cosmic dualism that we've seen before, but it's about dominating the created world. If there's jealousy here, and there, I would say there is, Irenaeus says that there is, it's not directed against God, but it's against Adam as the kind of little lord over creation, the immature pimply lord who hasn't yet grown up into the full kingship he's going to one day <laughs> achieve when he finally gets to eat that apple.
right, so I guess the devil had a pretty good thing going there for a while. That is, until Jesus showed up. Dun, dun, dun. This is definitely starting to sound like some kind of evangelical comic book adaptation, Klaus. Well, if you're looking for some bam, pow, sock action, Jesus with the boxing gloves, etc., this isn't at all what Irenaeus is talking about when he thinks of the divine battle to recover humanity. You know, I think that's more Adam West, 1960s Batman show than comic book, but okay. P.S. Eartha Kitt was the best Catwoman of all time. Prove me wrong. Michelle Pfeiffer. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that milk scene. No, sorry, no. If there's no fighting per se, then Klaus, how does this struggle play out? Well, you may recall that you said Jesus is the grown-ass man of the equation. The point is that differently from Adam and no not Adam West, he's in the position to really obey God. Uh, okay, Trinitarian. So you mean obey himself then? Yeah, you just just try to keep it simple here. We got a bit of time before the Christological niceties get okay, hammered okay. out. So, yeah, suffice is to say that Irenaeus takes seriously the humanity of the Incarnation, especially insofar as it represents the return of the repressed Adam's glorious pure Yeesh. flesh. I can't tell if that's pornographic or eugenic. Either way, yeah, therein lies the spice of life, my friend. But seriously, <laughs> I'm so often taken by these sort of erotic and racial overtones and ideas about the incarnation. It seems like it's either out in the open or it's being repressed really hard. But it's, you know, it kind of goes along with God being a human being is like dealing with sexuality and then as you know from people living in the 21st century dealing with how that's racialized too absolutely not to mention right the misogyny that can result from that right it's oh well god came into a male body therefore you know etc etc but how does all this make a difference when it comes to beating the devil i think what really plays out most fully in the is like the death on the cross you know, the sort of idea of sacrifice and ransom. Hold up. Ransom? Was there like a kidnapping here that I missed? Did someone kidnap the preteen Adam and Eve? <laughs> or like, <laughs> was there some sort of blackmail? Listen, I know you abandon your children, Adam and Eve, and, and I will post it to my Snapchat story unless you Venmo one billion drachma by the sixth hour. I mean, basically, <laughs> sort of, right? Sort of, right? <laughs> <laughs> Irenaeus was basically the first person to articulate a ransom theory of the atonement. You know, the atonement is like the idea that how Jesus intercedes for human beings and makes things right. And so then this, this idea is like that the devil through deceit tempts humanity and with humanity's fall, the devil unjustly gains some sort of rights over humanity. The devil has power over humanity like de facto. And thus humans become prey to sin, mortality, um, demons, everything that's bad in the world. And despite the fact that the devil acts unjustly, the word or the logos, uh, the second part of the Trinity that's been incarnated in Jesus, acts logically, rationally. And I guess that pun was intended by Irenaeus between the logos and logikos. And so he redeems humanity through self-sacrifice. How that's logical 
is a bit odd, but it plays into the Greek philosopher mode of Christianity that's going on here. Okay. You know, all this language about sin and death and mortality and the devil kind of reminds me of the Paul episode, that idea of powers and principalities that Paul goes on about in his letters, the way he glosses over sin and death and these forces of evil that kind of surround humanity that Christ uh, is triumphant over, you know, Christus victor, Christ as the victor. Yeah, totally. I think that's it. And and Irenaeus, he's making a, a good effort to try to do justice to those biblical antecedents. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, the, the devil gets rights, you know, sort of like bootleg rights, over human rights. Bootleg rights. <laughs> right. so, in intellectual property f- fraud or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Over humanity this way. And so even though he did it wrongfully, uh, though, he, you know, Irenaeus is like, this was all a scam. It's all a scam, but he's got the money. Like, that's kind of the deal. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later theologians, right. later theologians are going to say, like, no, like, later theologians are like, oh, maybe the devil has got a point. Maybe he does got rights <laughs> over these guys. You know, like... <laughs> Like, who would want to argue that position? Like, oh, no. Yeah. We all belong to the devil. Well, give, like the he, de- give, give the devil his due, you know. Uh, this kind of shit. Due, which, which, P.S. is my soul forever. <laughs> right. But okay. Right. Right. Uh, so anyway, Irenaeus is a little bit different than those other guys. The coup de grace against the, the devil comes in the crucifixion and the atonement that happens thereby. But he also has Jesus kicking the devil's ass throughout his, his lifetime. So let's think back to something. Just pause and reflect on this for a second, Travis. Mm, okay. Something we discussed in our, our legendary, iconic, record-setting first episode of Seven Heads, Ten Horns on Temptation. Oof. Now that, that is a total classic, Klaus. A real classic. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm just going to take a moment to soak in the glory that was episode one. Uh, No, I'm not. I'm going to go right on. So there are temptations in the wilderness. And by the way, Jesus was hurled into the wilderness by the Spirit. Again, assuming a Trinitarian way of thinking about God here. So that makes Jesus like actually hurling himself into the wilderness or the desert or the desert. Right. Uh, Checks out. Okay. Makes sense. Checks yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me, you know, uh, high millennial that I am of, uh, Tyler Durden beating himself up in fight club. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt. Oh, but like Gen Zers might be more familiar with stitches by what's his name um okay boomer it's sean mendez um and there's this video where he's like being beaten up by a ghost this invisible entity is beating him but of course it's his heartbreak that's like you know this lover has left him in stitches because she's left him Mm. but yeah I'm, I'm, i'm getting my mind back to to Brad Pitt and Edward Norton beating themselves up. Yeah. So anyway, right. Hurled into the desert by himself. Make of that what you will. But that allows us to meet the devil pretty early on. Um, You know, if you're looking at the gospel of Matthew, that's in Matthew four. And and so, yeah, Jesus is hurled into the desert by the spirits. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he might be a little hungry. You know, that's not too hard to imagine. And lo and behold, here is Satan saying, if you're the son of God, there's all these rocks here. Well, guess what? You got bread. Turn them into, turn them into bread. And Jesus responds that, 
humans don't live by bread alone, but instead by the word of God. And like for Irenaeus, again, we're like by the word, by, by, by myself, I live by my, you know, yeah, we go back to that problem. But for Irenaeus, this shows Christ's humanity and at the same time, his humility as a humble servant. So it's, it's like this way of like kind of interrupting the dominion that the devil has over human beings to be sinful. It's like, well, I'm a human being and I know what to do. I know how to do the right thing. Right. Right. I can resist that, that need for, for eating at least for a little bit. Yeah. I like, I do appreciate that Jesus doesn't say I don't need to eat. Like I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm so godly, right. That I can just not, he just says humans don't live by bread alone, but does kind of acknowledge, you know, the humanity part. I enjoy that. And I think that's a little bit of what uh, Irenaeus is leaning into here, that humanity is still acknowledged in this temptation. Um, okay, so it's easy to imagine the devil mm. harumphing, if you will, and then whisking Jesus away to the highest tower in the temple and daring him to jump because, as written in the Psalms, because, you know, you've got to have the devil quoting from the Bible, that the angels won't let him bruise his foot on the stones, even. Man, like, what a, what a great temptation. You know, like, you're starving. Maybe it's time for some extreme sports. <laughs> I know, maybe I'll keep your mind off of it. You've you been know, fasting for 40 days in the desert. I know what you really want to do. I mean, angel bungee jumping. Angel yeah. bungee jumping, as you were saying. Angel bungee jumping. Bungee jumping with yes. the angels. Angel skydiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, et cetera. So what does this mean? What does this mean to you? Okay, so Jesus answers that one must not tempt the Lord your God. For Irenaeus, this means that Jesus is revealing himself to be God. Like, so I guess he's saying, don't tempt me. So as the word of God, he was the one who originally uttered these words to Moses in the, bo- in the book of Deuteronomy. But here again, it's like, don't try me. <laughs> Do not try me. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to let me quote myself here for a second. You know, like big power move. Bo- yeah. yeah. Like, Boss move, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about oh, we're going to annoy my dad by playing with the remote control angels, but more, I'm not here to play your games. I already know what I can do. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of, like, in, in sort of to reverse the situation, it's like what the devil says to Father Karras in The Exorcist. It's much too vulgar, the display of power. Right. Yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Uh, speaking of which, it takes us to the third temptation in which Satan whisks Jesus up to the peaks of the highest mountain in the land and shows him all the kingdoms and glories of the world. There's a lot of whisking in this whisk, temptation. Whisk. It's like a cleaning yeah. product. Like whisk. You know, <laughs> no, no streaks in the glass. No streaks. Uh, yeah. So if Jesus would just fall down and worship the devil, he could win this big prize of all these pretty cities and these big empires and all this, this, this grandiosity. Well, we all know how this ends. Jesus chases him off because worship is reserved for the true God, etc. Again, himself. This is the moment that Satan's apostasy is revealed. His idolatrous passions, his pretensions for power and authority. And for Irenaeus, interestingly, Satan is beaten in this moment because the power and the glory of the world are not his to give. They rightfully belong to God. So he's unmasked as this apostate rebel who has no real authority. Uh, As Irenaeus puts it, as a human being, the Lord showed Satan to be a runaway slave, a violator. Oof, it's getting really awkward up in here, Klaus. Yeah. yeah. A violator of the law and an apostate from God. 
Then, as the word, he bound him firmly as his own runaway slave and took possession of his treasure, that is, those human beings who were held in thrall and treated unjustly by him. That's interesting. It's interesting, the whole, all the, the slavery imagery, it, it harkens back to the sort of um, the pseudo-Pauline yes. uh, rejection of the slave who runs away in, in Philemon, right? Mm-hmm. And to say like, oh no, like slaves should stay slaves. Like that's the, and it almost seems as if Irenaeus is channeling that when he's naming uh, the devil as a runaway slave. Because it's like, well, it, for Paul, the slaves should go back to their masters. But it's also, this is like in big tension with some other ideas about the devil's relationship to political power that we've seen so far. Um, like both Paul and um, the author of the fourth gospel of John write about the devil as like the prince of this world or this age. And from that perspective, the world of politics and power really does seem to belong to him. And he does have this power to trade to Jesus. Right. There's a sense in which it seems rightful, but... Not here. In this moment, it seems that Jesus is taking back that power over human beings and their societies by showing Satan's authority to be, ultimately, illegitimate. You know, this prince of this world, it may be for now, but now Jesus has shown up, right? And the emperor has no clothes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like the the devil had, had that idea and then Jesus disabused him of that. Yes. Um, and you know, like, this is the moment, right. Where the devil was, the devil was right for a second. The devil was right for a long time. And it's like, uh, no, now that power is deactivated and reappropriated. This is the moment in which it all, we, we wind the clock back. This also answers back to the idea we talked about before, where you have Christ as the second Adam coming from Paul and picked up by Irenaeus. Adam was tempted and fell. Christ was tempted and remained steadfast. No desert snack time, no remote control angels, and no playing prince for him. And this gets us back to the idea of recapitulation. We talked a little bit about Adam Christ as recapitulation, but there's also Eve and Mary, and that one gets a lot of play in the Middle Ages, and then the tree of knowledge and the cross as another kind of pairing that's part of this idea of recapitulation. But here, the desert of Jesus's temptation is the setting for where the garden of Eden, that is, gets corrected or recapitulated. So you can think about a kind of recapitulation of place, if you will. Yeah, and I think one of those historians we read, Forsyth or, or Russell, even like draws out like this idea of like almost this fantasy that the crucifixion happens at the site of the tree of not where the tree of knowledge grew to really just like get that, that sort of geographical fantasy of place um, in sort of this literal recapitulation going. Yeah. So like one of the, the big books that brings Irenaeus and his ideas about the devil into um, modern theological conversation is um, Aulin's uh, Christus Victor, and one of the striking things about this book, at least one of the more recent editions, is that it has this really sort of glamorous um, Michelangelo sculpture of the resurrected Christ um, sort of coming out of the crypt, you know, like as if he just came from the from the gym, like he's jacked, um, he's swole. <laughs> like what has he been doing in that like tomb for three days? Well, now we know he's been pumping iron. 
we well you told us Not true you told us he he liberated hell and then he got then he you know it's like uh, the third batman movie where he's like in, in prison and he gets jacked like it's that one oh my god that's that is genius it's like hell as a prison with the prison gym that's exactly what happened thank you Klaus. right yeah no and so um, he's holding the cross like it's a baseball bat. It's like, say hello to my little friend here. You know, it's like, it's like batter up. Like Yikes. I'm going to smack you with this thing. Yeah. Um, it's very scary. So he's, so like, it's really aggressive, but there's also, it's, it's, there's a lot of nudity. Um, like I think one of the versions of this, uh, Michelangelo's original is covered up with this bronze chastity belt. Um, and so we're seeing this like really, it's like aggressive, but also eroticized male figure. Mm-hmm. In this in this idea of the resurrection, you know, like he is risen, you know, like make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's what we're getting. Well, that that part seems like it's going to threaten a lot of Christian theologians, Klaus, in this time period. Do you think people? So, did people really pick up on that idea of like hot, sexy, naked Jesus, or is this kind of an oddity? Would you say it may have died on the vine? I'll all right, say. all right, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was going against the tide. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see that um, this idea of struggle against the devil and triumph is linked to what could be like a more, and this links in with some of these readings of Uranus we've seen and given uh, a more sort of um, positive valuation of the body and what human bodies actually do, um, which seem to be important to Uranus and is a bit reflected in this Michelangelo sculpture. So the nudity of Christ in the Michelangelo statue then harkens back to Adam, right? Who's naked as a jaybird up in Eden. And that kind of circles the victory of Christ back over all of human history, going all the way back to Adam. As you said about the statue, though, Jesus looks like he's ready to beat some ass. And this is really quite different from what Irenaeus had in mind, the victory that Irenaeus describes isn't so literally violent, right? Yeah, and that puts Irenaeus at a bit of a contrast with some of the other sources we've seen that think about cosmic struggle against evil. You know, I'm thinking about like the War Scroll in our Dead Sea Scrolls episodes, another classic, right? Uh, and our our powerful <laughs> trilogy on Revelation. Powerful, powerful, powerful trilogy. Power. Yeah, yeah. Look, you, you go back and look that up if you haven't seen it. Mm. Um, so yeah, but. It, in, in, the, in those texts, war has this deeply theological, spiritual value. It's necessary for closing out history and making everything right. Oh, yeah. Some good old purifying violence, right, Klaus? Mm-hmm. So we still get some of that with the salvation work in Christ's crucifixion, but it's not like a battle with armies and whatnot. Yeah, it, it seems to me sometimes to be like more closely akin to like a legal dispute or maybe even like a debate between philosophers and the victory is achieved through Christ being ransomed to the devil. It kind of gives it that weird forensic criminal thing, right? Like a a nineties movie ransom. Um, God's both the passive victim and the victor by virtue of being right, I guess. Irenaeus says that he does everything in accordance with perfect rationality. And for me, this reminds me of the death of Socrates. Socrates willingly drinks the hemlock, just as Jesus is willingly uh, given up for the ransom, and dies. But the whole point is that he died in accordance with his own principles. He did it deliberately, freely, for a purpose. 
Irenaeus seems to be taking up that narrative or that kind of narrative to explain the victory of Jesus over the devil. What do you think about this whole Christus Victor situation? Like, what sense do you make of it, Travis? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This definitely feels like a kind of philosophical victory, if you will. I also want to say that I like the way that he does make use of reason, but not in the way that some of the other theologians are going to. You know, he points to logos, to Christ as the word, but this isn't a kind of rationality that's deeply opposed to the flesh in an overly dualist way. And again, I think that's because he's having an argument with dualists, right? But the thing that that ends up saving is that there can be a Christianity in Irenaeus's eyes that embraces both the use of one's reason and also the goodness of material creation and of bodies. And I think that that is quite hopeful and sort of a nice way to think about Christian theology in general. It's also, as you've pointed out, not a warlike contest, as we've seen before, but a peaceful one. And I would compare this, if we want to throw out some analogies here, to perhaps what a Greek athletic contest may have been like. You know, think early Olympics. And that also conveniently brings back our swole Jesus here as an athlete, uh, pits him against the presumably less swole Satan. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's no accident that Paul uses the imagery and metaphors that are based on uh, races and other sort of Greek, you know, sort of Greek inspired athletic events. So I think I think that's really that's really apt. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, so just to sort of think about our next week and where, where we're going and where we're coming to. I mean, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that um, prior to the discovery of some ancient manuscripts at Nag Hammadi, Irenaeus was our best source of information about Gnostics and and Gnostic ideas and mythologies and all these things. And so we're going to actually take the opportunity to get more into that material and learn about Gnostics uh, less from the sort of the biased point of view of polemicists like Irenaeus and more from the texts that they wrote uh, and circulated and studied themselves. So yeah, that's our, that's our plan for next time. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.